you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3, we're going to begin reading this morning, actually in verse 6, and then read through verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. So she, that is Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and, and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and recovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it's true that I am a redeemer. If there's a redeemer nearer than I, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So he held it, and she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for your blessing again upon the reading, the preaching of your word. We pray that, Lord, this word would be a word to sustain the weary, and that none of the words that are spoken today would fall to the ground, but would accomplish all that you have intended for them. Pray that uh, both the Scripture itself as well as the commentary upon it, Lord, would be edifying, uplifting, and full of the Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In the Western world today, One's identity is no longer a fixed commodity, but rather something quite fluid. Uh, as most of you know, every day in the news now, we hear of a famous uh, person on television uh, changing their sexual identity and being praised for it. Uh, there are some who have tried to change their racial identity and have been shamed for it, whereas still others have identified as another species altogether and have baffled most of us by their unusual actions. Of course, many have tried to take advantage of this new way of thinking. Uh, in the news recently, there was a 69-year-old Dutchman who identified himself as 20 years younger than his actual age and tried to go to court to prove that so he could get a job. He firmly believes that he's 20 years younger than his actual age is. Uh, as many of you know, the uh, Christian satirical website Babylon Bee sort of pokes fun at a lot of these unusual attempts lately at changing one's identity. Some of them uh, uh, have made me chuckle as I read them. For instance, there's one article about a 20-year-old man identifying as a six-year-old boy who crushed the game-winning homer at last year's t-ball championship. Everyone stood to their feet 
as he uh, did the uh, unexpected. Uh, or the motorcyclist who identified as the bicyclist and won the Tour de France in only a day and a half instead of the 21 days normally required. Or consider the great controversy of the latest uh, Miss Universe pageant in which all the losers identified themselves as the winner. And all of them were right. All of them got the crown. Lately, it seems that uh, our culture is crazy with our new identifications, especially the younger generations, really have lost sense of really who they are as individuals. They, they, they feel lost and want to belong to someone, to something. I, I don't think that's something necessarily new. It's just, it's just being seen in unusual ways today. But it's, it's been a problem since the beginning, since the fall in the Garden of Eden. As soon as Adam and Eve lost that relationship, with God. They also lost a sense of who they were. And we've been affected by that ever since. All of us have been looking for, who am I? Uh, we've lost sense of that. I recently read a book uh, in which the question was asked of the reader directly, who are you? And uh, then the reader was told to write down the first 10 things that come to mind. If someone were to ask you, who are you? What would you write down? What would be those 10 words you ever done anything like that? It's, it's actually quite fascinating. Uh, most men immediately write down what they do. Well, I, I do this, I do that. And, and that works for a time until you can't work anymore, or you can't do what that is, or you lost your job, or you retired, and all of a sudden you've lost your identity. All of a sudden there's a male crisis here. In the same way, women immediately write down their relationships with other people. Again, this is the normal thing. Not all women do this. But that works for a time until they lose that friendship or lose that spouse or lose that sibling, and then they're no longer those things. And so we, again, lose sight of who we are because we place all of these sub-identities as our top identity. We're missing out on what God really has for us. I think some of the greatest problems that are affecting our society today stem from this very idea that we, we've lost sight of who we are. Uh, especially all the misconceptions and the exaggerations that we place upon our own identities. We are, are told that we have to identify with this particular movement or this particular crowd. Uh, everything is about race today or, or sex or socioeconomic status or a particular political party. It drives us crazy. We want to feel like we belong to one group as opposed to that other group. It's just constantly hostile. Clearly, the Bible has a a different view of these things. God has a different standard for our identity than what the world is teaching us. And God's standard actually promotes love and humility, unlike what the world is doing. The first way that the Scripture identifies us is simply as creatures of God. We've forgotten that, lost sight of that. Certainly, evolutionary theory is has uh, caused all sorts of havoc in that realm. But when we lose sight of the fact that we are creatures of God, made in God's own image, immediately we have no idea who we are. And then we also have no idea how to treat one another because it's only as you understand and respect the image of God in another person that you can learn to love and minister to them. If you can't see that, you'll be tempted to treat them in all sorts of horrible ways. Then the second way in which God identifies people is mainly as a friend of God or as an enemy of God. Again, based upon God as the creator, 
and now God is the Redeemer. Do you know Him or do you not? Uh, there's a big difference between those who do and those who don't. All throughout the book of Ruth, though, this concept of identity comes up again and again. It's, it's a theme that's addressed in a number of ways. Is Naomi to still to be called Naomi, the pleasant one? Or is now she to be called the bitter one because she's interpreted her new identity based upon her circumstances rather than upon what God has said she is? In the same way, is Boaz really the man worthy of honor or is he going to surprise us with how he treats Ruth in the middle of the night when she shows up at his feet? And then the same question keeps coming up, who is Ruth? It's not spoken directly, but it's implied over and over again. Who is this woman? Uh, seven times, the author continues to refer to her as that Moabite woman. That's her identity. She's not one of us. She's that Moabite woman. And we see that very clearly when Ruth first shows up in Bethlehem. Immediately, all the women dote upon Naomi. They're so glad she's back, but they don't even mention Ruth. It's like she doesn't exist. Clearly, they've identified her as something else something uncircumcised, something sinful, if you will. In fact, uh, she would be put into that same category as the Pharisees would put the sinners and tax collectors in the New Testament. It's the same concept. That's how she's perceived at first. But then when Boaz sees her for the first time, I pointed out to you that he doesn't actually say, who is she, but rather, whose is she? Again, he's putting in terms of relationship. Who does she belong to? Who loves her? Who takes care of her? Who, who is she with? And then we hear that question again when Ruth appears in the middle of the night. He sees her shadow, and immediately he says, who are you? He wants to know. Is this some loose woman? Is this some prostitute that has showed up at his feet, or is it something else entirely? He wants to know. To his surprise, when Ruth finally identifies herself to him, she says this, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. Ruth is certainly no prostitute. She's no seductress, nor is she simply an alien and a stranger, as many others had treated her. Um, but notice how she identifies herself. She identifies herself mainly as a servant, certainly a servant of Boaz, certainly a servant of Naomi. But if you think about it, all throughout the New Testament, that is the most common identification that any godly man or woman gives. Same thing in the Old Testament. Over and over again, in addition to being a, a creature, a creation of Christ, a friend of God, immediately they say, I am a servant of the Lord. In fact, I, I challenge you to find one single time in, in Paul's epistles where he doesn't mention that he is a servant of Christ. Instead of immediately beginning by saying, I am the apostle, you should listen to me. Every single time, I am a servant of Christ. And because he's a servant of Christ, it affects how he sees other people. He then sees them as someone that he is willing to serve. Uh, in fact, that's how he portrays it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Um, he, referring to all the apostles, he says this about their identity. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. There's a big difference in biblical identity versus the world's identities. The world's identities cause us to be hostile to one another, cause us to think less of one another, whereas the Scripture teaches us to esteem others higher than ourselves, right? That's what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. 
In fact, in that same passage in Philippians chapter 2, in talking about being full of the Spirit, he, he says this, have that mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant. This is the mindset that Ruth has throughout the book. Clearly, the Lord has done a good work in her life, has brought the Spirit to her soul, and now she's beginning to see herself faithfully showing herself to, to serve in so many different ways. And it's interesting, uh, it, it used to be common in our country, I think when we had more of a Christian influence, that most people would finish their letters with some sort of valediction saying, your humble servant or your most obedient servant. Sometimes they would be mocking or saying it in jest, but there was such an effect in the Christian culture that people really perceived of themselves in some way as a servant or a minister. I, I think about uh, Abraham Lincoln. Every single letter he ever wrote, he always ended it with, your humble servant. can't imagine a president doing that today. I can't imagine most people doing that today. They don't see themselves as servants of God and servants of men. We're hostile. That's what we are. Because we don't see ourselves rightly. Because we don't see ourselves rightly, we don't view others as we should either. Again, notice how Boaz sees Ruth compared to how the rest of them see Ruth, at least at first. He doesn't refer to her as that Moabite woman or, or something else of that nature, nor does he see her merely as an object of desire. He's not looking at her like she's a piece of meat. Think of it, all the men he's warning to not lay a hand upon her, they see her differently. They see her for mainly her beauty, or they see her for something strange or something that we can take advantage of. He sees her as my daughter. Every single time he references her identity, it's always my daughter. He sees her as someone to protect, not someone to take advantage of. Again, we've lost sight of that in this culture. It's because of that, though. Think of it. It's because of how he sees her, how he identifies her. That's how he's able to maintain his integrity as well as hers when she shows up in the middle of the night. He doesn't see it as a way of taking advantage of some young foreign girl. He sees it as a way of protecting her reputation because he sees her identity clearly as a servant of God, a creature of God, even a daughter in the family of God. Um, again, verse 10, he says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Second time he says, he'll say it again, My daughter, my daughter, my daughter. He doesn't treat her that way, the, re the way that everyone else does. Notice, though, also, verse 11, the, the rest of the townspeople are beginning to pick up on the fact that this woman is different than they immediately had uh, labeled her. They're beginning to see that she is a worthy woman based upon her actions. Uh, again, I told you a couple weeks ago that uh, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the book of Ruth takes place immediately after the book of Proverbs because the book of Proverbs, positionally, the last chapter, chapter 31, is about the excellent woman the worthy woman. And in the very last verse, verse 31 of chapter 31, it says this about the worthy woman, and let her works praise her in the gates. And now we see everyone around town is praising the name of Naomi. She is a worthy woman. She perceived herself as a servant. They're perceive, perceiving her as a worthy woman now. 
Likewise, uh, verse 12, uh, Boaz is, is proving his own character, uh, proving the trust that Naomi had put into him, uh, that he would be a man of integrity, he would be a worthy man. He, he admits immediately that uh, he is a redeemer and is willing and able and eager to protect her and her family, to love her, to provide for her. Again, he sees this even as an act of service itself, sort of like the uh, in, in Romans chapter 13, talks about the, the ministers, even in the, the realm of the state, are ministers to serve you for your good. He is looking to do good unto this young woman and unto her mother-in-law, Naomi. He is uh, more than eager to do that. However, as we know that there's this other man that's in the picture, uh, again, we don't know a whole lot about him. He could be a, a lot less worthy of a man, but either way, uh, Boaz is going to meet with him the following day and, and address the issue with him. If he's unwilling to do it, Boaz will certainly redeem her. So then, again, according to his character, he tells her to lie down for the night, wants her to be able to sleep, doesn't want her to be attacked in the middle of the night. Who knows what could happen as her lie down, but gets up before the sun rises, has her get out before anyone sees in order to protect her reputation, to maintain her status, her identity as this worthy woman. And then before she goes, he basically unloads a ton of grain onto her shoulders in her, her garment, um, which uh, is even more than last time. If you remember last time, uh, she was carrying about 60 pounds of grain that she had threshed herself. Uh, now he gives her six measures of grain, which is 80 pounds. So, again, imagine this woman carrying just a super abundant load of grain on her shoulders. Boaz does this for three reasons. First, he does it in order that she might have a reason for being at the threshing floor in the middle of the night, at least in the early hours of the morning. Someone sees her, she now has grain. I was there, I was getting grain. She doesn't have to tell them the whole story. Then in addition to that, secondly, Boaz wants to continue to show that covenant love to her and, and to Naomi, providing for them, and again, gives them another, uh, if you remember, it was about seven weeks prior that, they, that uh, Ruth had gotten that first load of grain. He gives her even more than that this time. And then thirdly, to show that he's willing not only to do what Naomi is wanting and what Ruth is asking, but even more than that, well, abundantly more than that. Uh, you'll notice in verse 17, when Ruth shares with Naomi how Boaz had, had weighed her down with his heavy load, she said that he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And that's an interesting expression. It's the exact same expression that Naomi had used in reference to God. She had accused God of, of not being good toward her when she said, I left Bethlehem full yet the Lord brought me back empty-handed. And now Boaz, ministering to her in the name of Christ, if you will, is saying, that's not true. <laughs> that's not entirely true. Not only did you come back with Ruth to Bethlehem, but now she's coming back with a promise of a Redeemer and much, much more than that. Uh, again, even this concept of the seed of grain, all this that she has is, is, is meant to picture his willingness, Boaz's willingness to give her a seed, an heir, a lineage, and so much more than that. He's willing to do all that for her. But it's interesting, again, in terms of identity, 
when Ruth comes in the door, the question that Naomi actually asks her in verse 16. In the ESV, the way it reads, she says, how did you fare, my daughter? But that's not actually a a literal translation in the Hebrew. That's not what it says at all. Rather, she says, who are you, my daughter? The exact same expression that Boaz said in the middle of the night. Who are you? Now she's asking it. Again, I think a lot of uh, translators have just interpreted that to mean, how are you, or how did it go? How, How did it fare? How did you fare? in that sense. But that's not what she means. Rather, what she means is in the same sense that Boaz did ask when he first saw her, whose are you? Naomi wants to know, are you still a widow or are you a betrothed wife? Are you still <laughs> this person who's experienced all this bitterness or is there great hope now? Is as, as, as the circumstance changed? Who do you belong to? Are you just mine or are you now Boaz's? That, that really is the ultimate question in the Bible, if you think about it. That of all the things you read, you get from the beginning to the end, the question is, who do you belong to? Whose are you? Do you belong to the world? Do you belong to the devil? Or do you belong to God? There's a huge distinguishing difference again and again throughout Scripture. Either someone is a friend of the world and a son of the devil, or they're a child of God. There's a difference with who you belong to. And so the question, again and again, do you belong to these things or do you belong to God? In the passage that David read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, the, the identity of a Christian comes out very clearly. Uh, similar to Ruth, like the Gentile, the uncircumcised woman that she was, Paul describes our lives as these Gentiles who were the uncircumcised. He says, At one time, you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That was your identity. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Thus, when someone seeks refuge under the wings of Christ, if you will, they're no longer considered Gentile sinners, but part of the family of God. They belong now to God. And because we belong to God, we no longer identify ourselves the way we used to identify ourselves. We no longer see ourselves mainly by our sin. Uh, in that passage, if you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul is describing what they once were, he says, such were some of you sexually immoral, idolater, adulterer, homosexual, thief, drunkard, and the like. All of these unrighteous ones will not inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. Now you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. It's because He's washed us of our sin, because He has sanctified us by His Spirit, because He has justified us by His blood, that is not what we are anymore. That's what we were. This would make no sense. In fact, it would be anathema to Christ for anyone to come out and say something like, I am a homosexual Christian. There is no such thing. It's like saying, I, you know, I am a thief and a Christian. Whatever that first word is, that's what defines you. And if anything else other than Christian is that first word, and all the ten words that you mention, nothing else will 
define you for eternity. It's something temporary, something even in the past. Notice what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He's giving us his identity in Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Not the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the believer's new identity in Christ. Not what he once were, but what is now through faith in Jesus Christ. So that first and foremost identity that we have to have is always going to be not who we are, but whose we are. Have we been redeemed by the blood of Christ? Uh, notice over and over again the, the, the terminology that's used in Scripture. Now we belong to Christ. Now we are members of Christ's church. Now we are part of the bride of Christ. Now we are servants of Christ. Now we are friends of God through Christ Jesus. Over and over again, it's this idea of possession. The Lord has taken us as his own. He has redeemed us as his own. We're no longer bitter, but now blessed because we are in Christ Jesus. Not merely saint now, but also saint in Christ Jesus. Not merely lovers of self, but now lovers of God, lovers of men. Not only do we know the Redeemer, we want to to share the love of Christ with others, to tell them about that Redeemer who can save them of their sins. And I'll tell you one thing for sure. Any assurance of salvation that you will ever have will not be based upon what you've done. Ever. I think that's the greatest travesty that we often experience. My assurance of salvation is going to be based upon how well I've done today. How well I did yesterday? How well I've done this year? It's never based upon who you are, what you've done, but whose you are. Your assurance of salvation, your Christian faith is always based upon, I have been redeemed by Christ. He is mine. I belong to Him. And He belongs to me. Any other words that you can say in reference to your testimony is going beyond what you need to go beyond. It always is going to come down to, I belong to Christ by faith. I've trusted him. He is my redeemer. Because anything you add is going to be something you've done. Ruth and, and Naomi both have to look to a redeemer outside of themselves. They're looking to Boaz outside of themselves. In the same way, we have to look for a redeemer outside of ourselves. We have to look for a savior who can save our souls. We cannot do it ourselves. No one in this room can say, well, I'm a good man, or I am a worthy woman, and that should be good enough. It's not. The question is not who you are, but whose you are. You're not just a creature, but have you been redeemed? That's the question that the Bible keeps asking again and again. Who are you? Whose are you? Some of us don't like to answer that question. Some of us have no idea how to answer that question. Some of us are extremely anxious about answering that question because we lost sight of who we are. One of the most uh, comforting questions, it's actually about comfort in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's about assurance of salvation. The question is asked this way, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer 
I am not my own. I belong, body and soul, both in this life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It all comes down to whose you are. Who do you know? But do you have that comfort? Do you know that redemption that is in Jesus Christ? Does that bring you comfort? I remember listening to a song a few years ago. I don't remember how long ago, uh, by a young woman, late teens, I think, wrote the song herself, was singing it. You know, it's a typical breakup song, you know, kind of thing, you know, that you hear on the radio. But I, I thought it was profound the way she had phrased it. Uh, she, she kept talking about uh, a dark, cold night, trying to figure out this life, she said. Um, and then all of a sudden, she, she cried out with this cry of desperation, very raw, very honest, and she simply said, someone, someone take me by the hand. Take me somewhere new. I don't know who you are, but I, I'm with you. And I thought, as I was looking at it, how sad and scary that is in this life to be willing to take anyone's hand so long as they say, I'm with you. But after reflecting upon it, it, it made perfect sense to me. I, I think we all do that, whether male or female. We all have that same sense of lostness, loneliness, that sense of desperation. We don't know who we are, but we want to belong to someone, to something, because God has made us that way. He's made us to belong to Him. But we've severed that relationship, and so we don't know where we belong. We have no sense of who we are. But we want to feel like we belong with some group, some person, something. We're desperate for that. No matter how introverted we are, we still want that. The, the problem is each one of us have gone looking for a false redeemer. We've, we've looked for that in so many places, so many someone, so, so, so many somethings that we've looked for, and each time they've disappointed us or eventually they've left us, and then we cry out again. Because there's nothing and no one in this life that will ever be able to give you that type of comfort that will ever help you to rest in that way because they're not your redeemer. They can't redeem you. I think that's the hardest part. Even when I witnessed, especially in our church, we've, we've had so many, uh, so many women that have lost their husbands. Oh, and it, I hear it in their voice, the sound of the word widow. Just despise it. <laughs> no, I belong to someone. The truth is we're going to lose all of our someones. And we're going to lose all of our somethings. There's only one who can give us comfort in this life, who will never leave us, never forsake us. We'll finish what he started. Who will take any Moabite, any Canaanite, any unclean, uncircumcised person, any sinner, and turn them into a worthy woman, a worthy man not because of who they are, but because of whose they are. Because Christ, as the Redeemer, has cleansed them of their sin, given them a new identity through relationship with Him. Now they're righteous, now they're holy, now they're a saint because of what Christ has done for them.
And it's, it's interesting the way uh, the end of the text reads, uh, Naomi, who has been this uh, bitter, doubting woman, is now very excited again, and, and she's telling Ruth to not do anything now. Before she's scheming and plotting and planning, and now she's like, just sit and wait. And Boaz will not rest until he settles the matter today. I'd, I'd say the same thing for anyone who has lacked that sense of rest, have not had that comfort, it's really that simple. You go to the Lord, you lay it before Him immediately, and then you can rest. Because He's promised, I'm going to settle it today. Go before my Father in heaven. You're mine. You belong to me. I belong to you. Now you can rest. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would speak truth to our souls, speak tender words of love to us that we might understand what it is that you're saying through the word, that we might know what it means to be redeemed, that we might rest in our redemption and stop fighting and stop trying to prove ourselves there is nothing to prove. You've proved it all on the cross. That you are the righteous one. You are the holy one. And now, even though we are so easily contaminated by sin, and sin even touches us, it contaminates us, but the moment you have come into our life, mercy triumphs over judgment. Lord, help us to rest in that truth. Help us to continue to trust in Christ Jesus, we pray in his name.